this evening I'm preaching on the passage I just read for you, Numbers 14, 1 to 20, and again just to review the context briefly. They sent spies into the land of Canaan, and they found indeed it is a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, which indicates that it is actually the very land that God promised to bring them into, and that God intended to bring them into. For God himself said in Exodus 3, when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, that he would bring the people up out of slavery in Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey. So in the very act of realizing that, they're acknowledging, yeah, this, this land fits the description of that which God said he would bring us into. The problem is, there are huge people in the land, and ten of the spies said, we can't do it. And so here are the people prepared to just turn back. Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt, they say to one another in Numbers 14 and verse Four. We began looking at this broader narrative last week, and, and tonight we're in this section where the Lord responds to this situation by appearing at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel, it says in verse 10. He speaks to Moses, but apparently he's speaking publicly to Moses. Because it says that the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? The Lord is exasperated here with the people of Israel. This is getting ridiculous. Look at all that the Lord has done for these people. What more do I have to do before this people will believe in me? It's as if the Lord is saying. And then he says to Moses in verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, this suggestion to Moses apparently made in the hearing of all the people accomplishes a couple of purposes. For one thing, it manifests how seriously God takes sin. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 12, God had spoken to, sorry, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, God had spoken to Abram the great patriarch of the people of Israel and said, I will make of you a great nation. If the Lord wiped out these people and started over with Moses, he could still keep his word to Abram and make of Abram's seed a great nation. And yet it would set back, as one commentator pointed out, it would set back the fulfillment of God's promises all the way back to the stage they were at in Genesis chapter 12. And there would simply be one man with a promise. This is how seriously the Lord is prepared. This is the length to which the Lord is prepared to go to deal with sin among His people. 
And I think we need to understand that obviously, according to the Lord's decree and in His foreknowledge, of course, you know, Moses was predestined not to take him up on this offer and, you know, all that that we know about God's sovereignty. But, but at the same time, if we can think about this, if Moses said, okay, sure, then I'm sure the Lord wouldn't say, well, no, I was only joking. Right? We have to see, we have to see serious intention here notwithstanding God's sovereignty and foreknowledge and, and so forth, that it would fall out this particular way. But we have to also see serious intention on the Lord's part and, and, a, and a willingness to follow through on that which He indicated that He would do. So, so for one thing, this manifests how seriously God takes sin. The people of Israel should take it to heart. <clears throat> The next purpose that this suggestion to Moses accomplishes is that it manifests Moses' purity of heart, if I can put it that way, in the sight of the people. Not that he's perfect, but that he's sincere. It vindicates his sincere desire to see God's people thrive. The way Moses answers here, and of course the Lord knew Moses would answer this way, this indicates to the eavesdropping people of Israel that Moses is not self-serving and self-aggrandizing the way that they have accused him of being over the last couple of chapters, but that Moses actually has a sincere desire for the well-being of this people. It vindicates or manifests his faith in God to finish what he started. It shows Moses here as a man who believes what God spoke to him at the burning bush. That he would bring the people up out of the land of Egypt and all the way in to the land of Canaan. And it manifests Moses' concern for God's glory above all. We see here in Moses' Response: These three things. A sincere desire to see God's people thrive. A sincere belief in God's promises and power. And a sincere desire for God's glory. Moses is admirable and exemplary here in this passage. What a good leader. What a good man Moses is in this passage. He is offered to be the head of a nation greater and mightier than this people whom he leads. And we know that Moses is not infatuated with this people. We see, we see here a, 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 a sincere and a genuine love. But based on the last couple chapters, we know that it's not an infatuation which is blind to the faults of these people. Just two chapters ago, Moses is like, why, why should I have to take care of these people? These are not my kids. You know, why have you treated me like this? Lord, just kill me. I don't even want to deal with this anymore. Right? So Moses is not, is not smitten with these people in a naive and in a blind way. And yet we see here, when the Lord, if the Lord were to begin talking about killing Moses, Moses probably would have been like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but... Because the Lord talks about killing the people of Israel, 
Moses rises to the occasion and is like, no, Lord. No, no, no. They have to thrive. You have to take care of these people and bring them into the land that you promised to give them. That is an admirable and an exemplary response that Moses is sincerely and genuinely concerned about the people that he leads. Moses has himself and has the people of Israel situated in the correct narrative. Right in the middle of the correct narrative, in fact, between promise and fulfillment. He believes what God said to him on the side of that mountain many years prior when he appeared in a burning bush said to him that he was going to come down and visit the people of Israel in Egypt bring them up out of there in order to bring them in to a good land flowing with milk and honey Moses is a man who is not doing what he's doing externally and and outwardly without believing it sincerely and inwardly Moses really believes that the people of Israel are on their way somewhere and that the promises that God has made are are valid and good and that, that God is who he said he is and is able to bring them in. He believes, therefore, implicitly, though he doesn't say it in these words, but he believes, therefore, implicitly, that Caleb and Joshua are right. And that they should go into the land of Canaan. And that they should take it. Because God, who has promised, is faithful. And he will do it. And though these people are, are balking at the idea, and though these people are, are rebelling... Moses sees here, we are on the cusp of the land that God promised to give us. And God is a great God and He is well able. And God is a faithful God and He will keep His promises. This is where Moses' heart is at and that is manifest in the way that he responds here. And we see Moses' sincere desire for God's glory. Notice what he says. He doesn't say... He doesn't say, Lord, I would be heartbroken if you killed these people. He doesn't say, Lord, they deserve better. He doesn't doesn't intercede for them on any one of a myriad of possibilities. Other possibilities being the basis of his intercession. He intercedes for them on this basis. Look. The Egyptians are going to hear about this. And then they're going to tell the Canaanites. And everyone's going to think that you brought them up out of Egypt, but then you just couldn't finish what you started. And so people are going to mock you. People are going to be unimpressed with Yahweh. And they're going to think that even though he won a battle against the gods of Egypt, The gods of the Canaanites proved too much. And it's going to result in dishonor to your name. This is the basis upon which Moses appeals to God 
not to kill the people of Israel as one man, which is idiomatic for them dying together instantly the way that a single solitary individual would die. So he says, you can't, you can't kill them as one man because it would result in dishonor to your great name. This is a, a real admirable and exemplary response. The way that Moses responds here is above reproach. And in fact, in fact more than just being above reproach, it's, it's worthy of commendation and worthy of emulation. The accusation, as we move towards some applications for our own lives, the accusation was that Moses was self-serving and and self-aggrandizing. Do you remember seeing that particularly when Moses and, er, sorry, when Miriam and Aaron come to oppose Moses? Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? There's this idea that, like, why should Moses be exalted above everybody else? And the, by implication, the criticism was that Moses has exalted himself above everybody else. That Moses really likes to be at the helm because of how it makes him feel or how it strokes his ego or whatever. We see in Moses admirable and exemplary response in Numbers 14 that that accusation of being self-serving and self-aggrandizing is patently false. If it was true, then when God offered to strike everybody down and make of Moses a nation greater and mightier than the people of Israel, if that was where Moses' heart was at, he would have been like, well, sure, Lord, if you say so. We see then that that is patently false. As you serve your brothers and sisters, as you make disciples, as you give to the church, as you do what you do in the service of the Lord and in the service of the Lord's people, why do you do it? What would you do with an offer like this from God. We read in the Gospels of the, the Pharisees who like to carry out their righteous deeds before men. For them, even, even religion was an opportunity to serve themselves and to aggrandize their own reputations. It was for their own glory. If the Lord came to one of the Pharisees who for a show went out and prayed on the street corner that everyone might see him and wore these gaudy garments with long tassels and so on and so forth, said, listen, the people of Israel are not really that great. How about I strike them all down and make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Look, those who are into that sort of thing would be like, yeah, yes, Lord. I had hoped and prayed as I read the Torah many times 
that this day would come and that you would realize that I am a modern day Moses and that you would see fit to offer me what you offered to your servant of old. And yes, Lord, I am willing. Here I am. Use me. Right? The, there is this purity of heart here exemplified in Moses' service, Moses' diligence to hang in there and keep, keep loving and serving and ministering to a people that he was exasperated with, who he was so frustrated with that at least at times he would rather die than keep doing what he was doing. And yet when the Lord says, well, let me just kill them all and, and bless you, Moses is like, no, Lord. This shows that he was not self-aggrandizing. What if the Lord made the same offer to you? What are you in it for? Why do you do what you do? Do you have a sincere desire to see the people of the Lord thrive? And is that why you do what you do? Or are there motivations like the Pharisees of self-aggrandizement and self-service? Next. Do you believe in the worthwhileness, if I can invent a word, of loving, serving, discipling, etc.? That if you take up a spiritual sword, as it were, and do with it what the Lord has commanded you to do with it, to the end that the Lord has said that He will use it? Do you believe that it will be effective? As these people stood on the cusp of the Promised Land, they believed that taking up swords would not be worthwhile. That taking up swords would be ineffective and that they would actually be overcome and they might as well not try. Do you believe in doing spiritual warfare? of encouraging and exhorting and rebuking and discipling and modeling and praying and attending church and giving and all of the the various things you do for the people of God, for their thriving, for their flourishing, in order that the, the, the declared purposes of God might be fulfilled in and for His church. Do you believe that if you gird on your sword and go across the river Jordan, so to speak, to do battle with the Canaanites, do you believe that it's worthwhile and that Christ will build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail? Do you believe that when you evangelize that people will be saved? Do you believe that when when you go out there and attempt to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Do you believe that He who promised is faithful and He will surely do it? Or do you fear that the giants in the land are too big to overcome? And that there's no way that the church can prevail against the darkness that envelops us and surrounds us and awaits us if we were to go out there and actually do what God told us to do.
Have you, like Moses, situated yourself and the people of God around you in the story, in the middle of the story, between promise and fulfillment, such that you're prepared to stand shoulder to shoulder with this mediocre army and believe against all odds that God is with us. And that as we do what he's called us to do, that he will give us the victory. Thirdly, would you be content for God's name to be dishonored in another Christian's ruin so long as you are preserved? Or does your love for God's glory prompt you to pray for other Christians and all other Christians? What is it about for you? Your church? Your family? Your individual honor? Such that if your church is in conflict with another church or your family has a conflict with another family in another church or in your own church or if you as a solitary individual are slighted by someone criticized by someone would you be happy to see those other Christians ruined as long as you are preserved Would you be content for the Lord to destroy them? Disinherit them? As long as you are preserved? Or does your love for God's glory prompt you to pray for those other Christians? As Moses does here. Lord, these are your people. That brother who offended me is a blood-bought child of God. You have covenanted with him for his good and his, not only his justification, but his sanctification and his glorification. Lord, please, for the sake of your great name, do not destroy that brother. Do not destroy that church. Do not destroy that family. Lord, please be gracious to them for the sake of your great name. You see here the various ways that ego could get in the way of the kind of attitude and disposition that we ought to have which Moses exemplifies in this passage. If it's all about us, all about us as individuals or us as family units or us as a church or us as a tribe of like-minded churches or whatever, the offer that God makes to Moses begins to really appeal to us when our ego is the guiding principle. And 
church and religious activity become things that really are not in keeping with what God has promised to do and with the glorifying of His name through the fulfillment of what He has promised to do. We need to learn from Moses' admirable and exemplary response to sincerely desire to see God's people thrive. To situate ourselves and every other Christian right in the middle of the unfolding narrative of redemptive history between promise and fulfillment somewhere in the wilderness. And we need to have a sincere desire for God's glory, which leads us to long for them not to be disinherited, but for all of us together to get across the River Jordan and into the promised land. This is the heart that all Christians should have for God's people collectively, for the church. And we really ought, as Moses does here, to intercede for and to pray for the church universal. Those are some applications for us. Consider also the theological trajectory of this passage. And I'm going to point out two things. One is, in our case, the injustice that destruction and disinheriting would be if God were to destroy and disinherit His new covenant people. As I mentioned to you towards the beginning, knowing the Lord's foreknowledge and decree and so forth, obviously Moses was always predestined to say this and so on and so forth. So in a sense, it's a, it's a hypothetical thing, what God offered to Moses. And yet, as I said, God wasn't bluffing in the sense that Hypothetically, if Moses had said yes, the Lord wouldn't have been like, oh, well, I was only joking and hoping he would, were going to say no. The Lord was prepared to take the fulfillment of his promises all the way back to the stage of Abram, where there was simply one man with a promise. He was willing to, to sort of rewind over 400 years and let everything that transpired in the meantime go up in smoke to deal with the people's sin here in this situation. Listen, the Lord would not have been unjust if He had done that. Because the Lord had brought these people into a covenant whereby if they obeyed, there would be blessedness. And if they disobeyed, there would be curses. And here in this passage, they are disobeying. And so for the Lord to to disinherit, destroy them, would not be reneging on any of the promises that He had made. In fact, God's bearing with His Old Covenant people throughout the whole Old Testament Scriptures is not an example of His faithfulness to His covenant. It's It's an example of His mercy in continuing 
to bear with people who deserved worse and whom he may justly have visited wrath upon earlier and disinherited earlier. I think that came out of my mouth a little bit wrong. Obviously it is an example of God being faithful to his end of the covenant, even as the people were unfaithful. But what I mean, what I meant to convey is that God would not have been unjust or unfaithful to his covenant to cut Israel off even at this early stage in Numbers 14. It would have been God's prerogative to do so, and God would not have been breaking his covenant to do so even in Numbers 14. So the fact that he let it play all the way out to Malachi is not because he had to let it play all the way out to Malachi. It's because he was merciful to let it play all the way out to Malachi. That's what I intended to convey by that. Now, consider the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, we read this. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So this whole idea that the old covenant and the new covenant are really one and the same but they just sort of have a different outfit on, so to speak. The way that a person could change clothes from one day to the next and appear a little bit different, but they're the same person. This is simply incorrect when we look at the data of Scripture. There is a covenant which has a different mediator and different promises, according to Hebrews chapter 8. And the covenant that Christ mediates is said to be better, and it is identified with the new covenant. And in Hebrews 8 and verse 9, it is said that the new covenant will be not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declared the Lord. Declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In the new covenant, we are told that it is not going to be like the Old Covenant, which was breakable. We are told that it is going to be a covenant which in, involves the blessing of inward heart change and a true knowledge of God, as opposed to merely externally having God near you without that inward heart change. And we are told that a blessing of the covenant is mercy towards iniquities and forgiveness of sins. What this means is that when it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What this means is that it would be unjust for God not to forgive the sins of His new covenant people who are in Christ Jesus. It would be unjust having promised that He would forgive our sins and be merciful toward our iniquities. It would be unjust for Him not to forgive our sins and not to be merciful towards our iniquities. And so consider then that the glory of God's name is wrapped up in the impossibility of striking His new covenant people with a pestilence, as it were, and disinheriting them. That is a tremendously encouraging thought. And it's a, it's, it's a wonderful basis upon which to pray for those who are truly and genuinely in Christ and yet perhaps in grievous sin. The second theological trajectory of this passage leads us to Jesus, the consummate intercessor. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, we read this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You don't have to be disappointed because I am not as good of a leader as Moses. And I'm not as pure-hearted as Moses. I'm not as diligent of an intercessor as Moses. And you don't have to feel it, man. Here we are with John. When back in the day they had Moses. Because the reality is that we all have a much more wonderful intercessor than Moses. His name is Jesus. And though Moses died, and though I will die, and though those who... who, lead us in various ways, all will die. Those who pray for us, all will die. You might think of grandparents who prayed for us diligently, or older saints in the church who would send you a note every once in a while, or, or phone you and remind you that they're praying for you. Though all of these die, Jesus lives forever to make intercession for His own. And He has a genuine desire to see us thrive. And He knows that we are right in the middle of the story between promise and fulfillment. And above all, He is concerned for the glory of His Father. For His own glory for the glory of the blessed Holy Spirit. Because it would be unjust in the new covenant for us to be struck down and disinherited. We may be sure 
that Christ is ever pleading for us on that basis. And so as long as He in heaven stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. We have a truly good and wonderful intercessor, even better than Moses, better than any grandparent or pastor could ever intercede for you. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his own. What a wonderful reality.